DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme... I mean, in the end, this is what the debate boils down to. Namely, which option is more dangerous? Tank deliveries on the one hand or Putin's victory? Blockage lifted. Germany opens up the way for Leopard 2 tanks in Ukraine. And blockage cemented. Turkey is more determined than ever to use its NATO veto against Sweden. I'm sorry, you will not see any support from us regarding NATO membership. Also, corruption uncovered. Heads roll as Zelensky launches a high-level cleanup. War is a really terrible creator of opportunities for corruption. All that and more coming up. Russia has accused Germany of taking the war in Ukraine to a new level this week after Chancellor Olaf Scholz bowed to domestic and international pressure, announcing that Germany will supply Ukraine with 14 of the coveted German-made Leopard 2 tanks, opening the way for other countries to do the same. My colleague Ben Batka spent the week at a security conference co-organised by the German military here in Bonn, and he joins me now in the studio to tell us about the significance of this development. Ben, welcome to the studio. Hi, Kate. Good to be here. It's been a really eventful week and you have been surrounded by people from the German military industry. What's your sense of what's been going on? Perhaps you could just really begin by giving me a a summary of what this drama has all been about. Absolutely. So on Tuesday, different German media reported that Germany finally gave the green light sending Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine after, as you pointed out, weeks of domestic and international pressure. And then on Wednesday, which happened to be Ukrainian President Zelensky's birthday, Chancellor Scholz officially announced that Germany would send 14 of its Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine together with European allies and the US. And these Leopard 2, German-made Leopard 2 battle tanks, they're really quite a big deal, aren't they? Can you tell me about them? What, What are they? What's different about them? So the Leopard 2 is manufactured in Germany and it first entered service in 1979, so over 40 years ago. And since then, it's really been considered one of the most, if not the most, powerful main battle tank in the world, mainly due to its ideal combination of firepower, protection, as well as speed and maneuverability. Now, uh, the roughly 60-ton war machine has a crew of four and a range of about 500 kilometers, that's about 310 miles, and top speeds of about 68 kilometers per hour, or about uh, 42 miles per hour. Its main weapon is a fully stabilized 120 millimeter smoothbore gun, that's that's a mouthful, Uh, and it also has a fully digital fire control system. Now, military experts believe leopards could be a decisive weapon, really, in Ukrainian hands, a, to withstand a Russian-expected spring offensive, and B, also to take back lost territory. And at the conference you mentioned earlier, uh, one of the people I spoke to about the significance of tanks for Ukraine is Gesine Weber. And she's a research analyst with the German Marshall Fund of the United States. The idea that battle tanks like the Leopard would allow Ukrainians to take back Crimea is completely illusional. That doesn't give them sufficient strength. I have to say, Ben, that's not the reaction I was expecting to hear. Does this mean then that leopards are not the game changers that we've been led to believe? No, probably not. Most military experts think of them more like a serious upgrade. And of course, their impact largely depends on the speed and the scope of the deliveries. 
And experts say Ukraine needs a minimum of around 100 units to make a difference on the battlefield. And Zelensky actually spoke of 300 that Ukraine needed. 300 units. Is he likely to get them? Not 300, but uh, in the short term, 100 are very likely because on Wednesday, the German government said Germany and its European partners would rapidly assemble two battalions of Leopard 2s. So that's the equivalent of about 100 tanks. While Germany itself pledged 14 of the modern Leopard 2A6 model, which actually surprised many experts, along with logistics, ammunition and maintenance of the systems, the Netherlands are apparently ready to send 18, Poland 14 and Norway up to 8. Uh, Spain had already indicated its willingness earlier to send uh, its own leopards. Uh, other countries could announce their plans in the coming days, uh, among them Greece and Turkey. And this is important because they have some of the biggest inventories um, uh, of all the NATO and European allies. What about the United States, Ben? What are they doing? Yes, yeah, so the US plans to deliver 31 M1 Abrams, but US officials reportedly said it could take years for them to actually reach any Ukrainian battlefields. In terms of speed of Leopard deliveries, German Defense Minister Pistorius said the tanks could be deployed by late April. And then, in the second step, uh, a second battalion is to be formed from older Leopard tanks. So things really are moving. Now, Ben, you've been at this conference, so you've been surrounded by members of the German defence community all week. What was their take on all of this? My impression was that most of them welcomed the move. But at the same time, many lamented that the Zeitenwende uh, hasn't really materialised yet. And at the same time, they're warned of a worsening of the already precarious condition of the German armed forces, the Bundeswehr. And they also pointed out that it could further weaken Germany's national and NATO defence pledges. Brilliant. Seitenwender there for people who don't know is a German expression meaning sort of changing of the times, right? A kind of a shift. Shift of an epoch, that's right. Paradigm yeah. shift. Paradigm shift, yeah. This is very dangerous. We should not give up our uh, defense uh, capabilities and we need them, especially in Germany. I mean, we have a very bad situation of the German armed forces. Erich Fahrt is a former brigadier general and advisor to former Chancellor Angela Merkel from 2006 to 2013. Now, he told me it's only in combination with other weapon systems like infantry fighting vehicles, combat engineers and fighter jets that the battle tanks, the Leopards, play to their strengths. However, fighter jets and other very sophisticated weapon systems would require Western personnel in Ukraine for logistical reasons and maintenance, according to Fahrt. This means Western countries could become involved in the war or, in military jargon, have the proverbial boots on the ground. And Fahad worries that this would cross a red line for Putin and could lead to a significant escalation in the war. So in other words, you had a former brigadier general telling you that sending more advanced weapons is actually a greater risk than not sending them. That's right. He said it could really lead to a direct confrontation between Russia and NATO and thus right into the abyss of World War III. I mean, in the end, this is what the debate boils down to, namely, which option is more dangerous, tank deliveries on the one hand, or Putin's victory? And many believe the much greater risk of escalation lies in a Ukrainian defeat, after which Putin could rearm to continue his aggression and complete his imperial project against the West on new fronts, like in Moldova, Georgia, or even the Baltics. But at least in Germany, the public remains divided over sending battle tanks to Ukraine. What about Ukrainians themselves, Ben? Were you able to get a sense of what the arrival of Leopard tanks will mean to them? Yeah, so at the event I also spoke to German photojournalist Till Meyer, who's been reporting from Ukraine since 2007. 
Over the past 11 months, he was embedded with Ukrainian military units right at the front lines a total of four times. Two weeks ago, I've been at Bakhmut, directly at the front line, and I was speaking with a commander. And he said it's not only about receiving very good tanks, it's also about morale. Because for his soldiers, it's, it's very important to see that they have partners they can rely on. And he said also, of course, it's a shock for the Russian forces when they see this uh, Leos coming towards them and not these old Soviet tanks. Lots of soldiers have also wives who are now in Germany and they're really thankful for this and for the other weapons they received. Ben, uh, thank you so much for coming into the studio and bringing those perspectives with you. Um, obviously a story that we will be following um, and it's been really great to have you here to give us your insights and analysis. Thanks for having me and uh, I feel like the uh, discussion will go on for a long time. You think you've asked yourself a return gig? That sounds like it, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks, Ben. My colleague Ben Batka there. The other big story occupying the European defence community this week is the increasing tensions between Turkey and Sweden following the burning of a Koran by right-wing demonstrators in Stockholm. Following the incident, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said that he will not support Sweden's bid to join NATO, effectively blocking Sweden's entry into the alliance which would need to be ratified by all existing NATO members. Last year, Turkey reached an agreement with Sweden and Finland in which the two countries agreed to several concessions in exchange for Ankara's backing of their NATO membership bid. Now, however, the Finnish foreign minister has announced a suspension of talks, saying a timeout is needed. But as Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul, it seems unlikely that there will be any cooling off before Turkish presidential elections in June. Ingen nationell säkerhetsfråga är nu viktigare för Sverige än att vi tillsammans med Finland... The Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristensen declaring Sweden's bid to join NATO as his country's top security priority and appealing to NATO member Turkey to resume talks over lifting its veto threat. All existing members of the military alliance have to agree to any enlargement and Turkey is set to be the only holdout with other holdout Hungary expected to ratify next month. The Swedish Prime Minister's appeal came as Ankara postponed a trilateral meeting with Sweden and Finland in response to the far-right demonstrators burning the Muslim holy book, the Koran, close to the Turkish embassy in Stockholm last Saturday. The Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is now ruling out support for Sweden's bid. Sweden's government does not need to talk about rights and freedom to us. If you really do respect rights and freedom, at first you need to respect the Turkish Republic or Muslims' religious beliefs. If you do not show that respect, I am sorry, you will not see any support from us regarding NATO membership. Even before the Koran burning, the Turkish government was outraged over another protest early this month in Stockholm, in which demonstrators hung an effigy of the Turkish leader from a lamppost. While condemning the protests, the Swedish government says they fall within freedom of expression, a stance supported Monday by the United States. State Department spokesman Ned Price speaking in Washington. We support freedom of association, the right of peaceful assembly uh, as elements of any democracy. 
but just as uh, the Swedish prime minister said, um, burning books that are holy to many is a deeply disrespectful act. Uh, and he made the point that what is legal is not necessarily appropriate. We have a saying uh, in this country, uh, something can be lawful but awful. Uh, I think in this case, what we've seen in the, in the context of, of Sweden uh, falls into that category. Washington is strongly backing both Sweden and Finland's bid to join NATO. But with Sweden granting asylum to many of Erdogan's opponents, some of whom Ankara accuses of being terrorists, Turkey is demanding concessions from Stockholm in exchange for lifting its veto. Last year, NATO brokered a deal among Stockholm, Helsinki and Ankara to resolve the impasse. But Ilhan Ulusgel, an analyst for the Kusa Dalga news portal, says that with Erdogan facing re-election by June, the Turkish president sees a political opportunity to prolong the dispute. This issue can be handled in diplomatic corridors. Erdogan prefers to make it public that he has the power, he's still a world leader, he bans the, the will of, the, of NATO and NATO aspiring countries, even the United States. So my guess is that he's going to use it until the elections. I mean, he doesn't care of the image of Erdogan. He, he knows that he has lost it. He doesn't care about is Turkey an ally or an enemy or a rival, whatever it is. He's completely, utterly focused on winning the elections because he's losing constituency. Standing up to NATO also plays well with his supporters, says Shebnem Ayşe Duzgit, an international relations professor at Sabanja University, close to Istanbul. It has to do with this sort of anti-NATO sentiment that's very closely related with the anti-Western and anti-American sentiment um, in Turkey. And the sort of perception that NATO has never really helped Turkey to fight, you know, with its own terrorism problem. With Turkey's president lagging in many opinion polls as the country grapples with economic problems, few predict any pre-election softening in Ankara's stance. Asla Aydin-Tashbash, a visiting scholar with a Washington-based Brookings Institution, says with Erdogan increasingly balancing his relationship with the West with good ties with Russian President Vladimir Putin, NATO will need to get used to a more assertive Turkey. The dynamics has changed. Turkey no longer feels uh, a strong and firm member of the Western camp or NATO alliance. It is still in NATO, but obviously also interested in having alternatives. And Turkey is also a whole lot more self-confident than it used to be. Both Sweden and Finland have penciled in NATO's next summit in July as a date for joining and securing themselves protection from any future Russian aggression. But given that there will only be around a month between the conclusion of Turkish elections and the July summit, they could be destined to wait a good deal longer. A prospect that could well put a smile on Vladimir Putin's face. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. For more news and analysis of European security fairs and beyond, download DW's breaking news app. In the meantime, you're listening to Inside Europe with me, Kate Laycock, in Germany.
Multiple top-level officials across different government ministries and law enforcement have either been dismissed or forced to resign in a major anti-corruption crackdown in Ukraine. The move follows several prominent corruption scandals, including two major investigations involving embezzlement of funds, including accusations of stolen money intended for troops. To get a sense of the significance of this high-level anti-corruption sweep in a country at war, I spoke to Alina Mundjupipidi, Professor of Democracy Studies at the Hertie School in Berlin and Chair of the European Research Centre for Anti-Corruption and State Building. Well, it is a little bit more unusual, but what we have here is a country which is a democracy engaged in a war. And although some things have been suspended in this democracy, for instance, Ukraine's uh, public procurement portal, Prozoro, which was a model of transparency in the world where and where every purchase could have been followed online with uh, contenders, uh, dates, uh, prices, and everything else. This is no longer online because, of course, uh, the enemies could take advantage of this. But what was not suspended is the very intense scrutiny of, uh, of civil society. So what happened is that civil society continues to monitor public procurement in various ways, and they found uh, a discrepancy. They found poor value for money related to some transactions of the Ministry of uh, Defense. Prior, the same story happened uh, just, uh, I think, a few weeks before with the um, Ministry of Development. So, in fact, in fact, it is continuous civil society now that the technology is suspended due to the fact that, uh, that Russia could profit from, uh, from transparency. And of course, although nothing is, uh, is proven yet, it's just an investigation going on, since in 2014 at the previous Russian invasion, there have also been a tremendous amount of scandals related to procurement of various defense uh, issues in, uh, on the Ukrainian side. There is very high sensitivity and therefore uh, there are quite a lot of people who are dismissed because when you are in a state of fantastic mobilization, as Ukraine is, you cannot afford suspicion. Even before you have 100% proof who is behind and who knows about this, and in particular in countries where corruption has been systematic for such a big amount of time, rulers like Mr. Zelensky know very well that whoever is in charge is responsible, regardless if they took bribes or they took kickbacks or not. And therefore, a sweep follows. So everybody who should have prevented this situation is removed in order to keep public confidence. How unusual is it for a wartime government to launch an anti-corruption crackdown on this scale in the midst of a conflict? Well, I think they have no choice. And I do not think that corruption was generalized uh, on this war. I think that actually it was worse on the Russian side, because if the kind of corruption in Ukraine that me and other scholars have known had existed in this war, Ukraine would not have managed, but they do manage. Now they manage to win battles, they manage to evacuate populations, they manage to, to feed people who are displaced. They manage quite well a country which has, uh, you know, not doesn't have control of a significant part of its territory. So I think that sort of like corruption was suspended due to the existential threat. And in fact, we know that, you know, historically, 
corrupt countries have a fantastic opportunities in wars because people get together the existential threat make it that people put general interest above their personal profit but of course of course however this is not general and war also generates fantastic opportunities for corruption because transparency is suspended we really don't know as well as we did a year ago when you know from my office in berlin i could have told you what whatever municipality in ukraine buys and at what price and this disappeared but Ukraine, on the other hand, as I said, has fantastic civil society. This civil society, this is an unprecedented war fought by government together with civil society in a lot of areas, including defense. There is cooperation, which I don't think existed in any other war before. And civil society plays its role. There is scrutiny, even if some transparency is suspended. And there is absolutely no choice than clean house, because otherwise uh, you would start losing. I mean, money is not in plenty. You really have to have good value for money. With the money that you give, you know, with the extra money, with the kickbacks, with the commissions, you could do other things. They need money in so other many places. And also they need to keep the trust of their donors. Ukraine resists because it's an influx of money from Western countries. Right. And you need to show to the donors that you make the best use of this money, not that another generation of Ukrainian ruler gets rich as it happened, you know, including after 2014, when a lot of Western money also poured into Ukraine and some of it found its way to various oligarchs and war profiteers. Finally, Professor, how hopeful are you that uh, this uh, anti-corruption sweep could have a lasting legacy even once the war is over? Well, I would phrase this a little bit differently. I mean, war is a really, really terrible creator of opportunities for corruption. And reconstructions after wars have always been corrupt. I have uh, been a scholar in the Balkans for UNDP, and I have seen for many years the reconstruction in, in the Western Balkan countries. Corruption is really unavoidable. If you create so many opportunities for corruption, you are just unable to meet them, however good the constraints that you develop are. So I think that, in fact, the best thing which can happen to to build Ukraine is to have a swift end to the war. It is clear to me that civil society development now has reached a very good level and Ukraine can indeed uh, build a less corrupt government if we would let the civil society and the Ukrainian society drive the process a little bit more and it would not always be us, the outsiders, because we really create, you know, disincentives which, with too strong intervention. So I think the part which should be of us is to really help them get a just ending of this war. Because the more this goes on, the more destruction it is, the more extensive the reconstruction will have to be, the more corruption you're going to have. That is simply, you know, a law of nature. We cannot avoid it. I was speaking to leading anti-corruption expert Professor Alina Mondiopipidi, chair of the European Research Centre for Anti-Corruption and State Building. So much happening this week in Europe, and of course we can only cover a small fraction of it here. For more news and analysis, though, you can always check out DW's Europe pages, download the DW Breaking News app, or follow the DW Europe handle on Twitter. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. 
This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, human trafficking. We take a look at two disturbing cases uncovered this week, one in Spain, the other in the UK. It's horrendous. What we're seeing is the Home Office have set up these hotels, but they're actually outside of what would class as the legal existing child protection frameworks. So it was inevitable that this would happen. And the Home Office themselves know that what they're doing goes against child protection laws. They've known that children have been going missing from them. It's a national scandal. We'll also be finding out why students in Germany are feeling the pinch and why French bakers have left their ovens to take to the streets. Stay tuned. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. Exploitation. Using someone else's weakness or desperation against them in order to manipulate or profit from them is perhaps one of the most unpleasant forms of human behaviour imaginable. It is also, in its most extreme forms, a crime. We're going to begin this half hour with a look at two separate exploitation stories which made headlines this week, one in the UK, the other in Spain. To Spain first, where earlier this week police announced that they had broken up a gang that had been operating three illegal factories producing counterfeit cigarettes. The Spanish authorities working in harmony with the European policing agency Europol had been on the trail of the gang since the end of 2021. The illegal operation had rapidly expanded its network with the influx of refugees from Ukraine following Russia's invasion at the beginning of last year. Many Ukrainians had been employed in the factories. From Madrid, Ashish Sharma reports. A video released by the Spanish Civil Guard police, the Guardia Civil, shows the moment when they enter into one of the three factories producing counterfeit cigarettes. A police statement said the gang had smuggled in large quantities of tobacco to make the cigarettes which were then being sold across Spain and neighbouring countries. The gang had been exploiting Ukrainians who had fled the war with Russia by employing them to carry out the work. But the workers were forced to live in what the police described as crammed prefabricated shelters within the factories. They were not allowed to go outside for fear of being detected and were made to work long hours. The factories were located across the country, from Seville in the south to the coastal city of Valencia in the east and in the famous wine-growing region of La Rioja in northern Spain. The police statement said that the gang were producing over half a million cigarette packets a day and that they had seized tobacco products from the three sites, including 10 tons of tobacco leaves and over three and a half million cigarette packs worth over 37 million euros. The video of the raid released by the Civil Guard also showed large quantities of cash found stuffed in coat pockets, machine equipment and cardboard boxes. Other items seized included jewellery and luxury cars. The police, who arrested 27 people, haven't yet confirmed their identities, but said the gang leaders lived a life of luxury in the upmarket tourist resort of Marbella on the Costa del Sol. This was the culmination of a police operation known as Fatica, which had begun at the end of 2021, with one factory operating in a chicken shed in Seville. However, the gang expanded its operation with the influx of Ukrainians. 
There are over 160,000 Ukrainian refugees who have been registered in Spain since the Russian invasion began last February. The police said the gang had also been diversifying after taking over several large marijuana farms. The exploitation of Ukrainians has been a growing concern for lawmakers in the European Parliament. Last November, the Parliament released a Labour report in which it concluded that given the urgency of their situation and language barrier problems, many Ukrainians were vulnerable and sometimes forced into taking informal and underpaid work. Ashish Sharma, DW, Madrid. Whilst the Spanish authorities were celebrating their successful gang bust, British authorities this week were trying to explain how hundreds of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children could have gone missing from home office-run hotels. There have been 440 missing occurrences and 200 children remain missing, 13 of whom are under 16 years old and only one is female. The UK's immigration minister there revealing the scale of the scandal in Parliament. Green MP Caroline Lucas was quick to condemn the government's failure to protect minors supposedly in its care, which she saw as directly linked to its use of inadequate hotel accommodation. This is horrific, Mr Speaker. Vulnerable children are being dumped by the Home Office. Scores of them are going missing. And I can tell the Minister there is nothing specialist about these hotels. We are not asking him to detain children. We are asking the Home Office to apply some basic safeguarding so we can keep them safe. Earlier, I spoke to Daniel Sohage, Campaigns and Communications Manager for Love 146, an international human rights organisation working to end child trafficking and exploitation through survivor care and prevention. Was his organisation surprised by the revelations, I asked? Unfortunately not. It's something that we've actually been warning about ever since the Home Office started running these hotels. Uh, we notified the Home Secretary at the time, Priti Patel, back in December 2021, that there was a high chance that children would go missing from these hotels and be trafficked and exploited. So there's nothing new about this. Um, it's coming to light now and the numbers are astounding, but we've this has been going on for quite some time. And it's coming to light now, mostly thanks to a whistleblower who went to the press this week describing how children were being picked up in vehicles right from in front of the hotel in Brighton where this person, a contractor, was working. Uh, They estimated that 10% of the children arriving in the hotels were going missing. What's your response to this? It's horrendous. What we're seeing is the Home Office has set up these hotels, but they're actually outside of what would class as the legal existing child protection frameworks. So it was inevitable that this would happen. And the Home Office themselves know that what they're doing goes against child protection laws. They've known that children have been going missing from them. It's a national scandal. The uh, majority of the missing children, um, 88% was the figure that I read, are believed to be Albanian. Is there a reason for this? Is there reason to believe that Albanian children may be particularly at risk of being targeted by traffickers? Albanian children tend to be one of the highest groups of children trafficked in the UK, um, normally just after UK children. So that's been the case for a number of years, that they are a very high-risk group. What's happening at the moment is that's being made worse almost 
by government rhetoric against Albanians because the gangs can then say, if you don't do what we say, if you don't follow through with what we're doing, you will be removed and sent back to Albania. But this time, you're not just going back to the circumstances which led to the original trafficking and exploitation. You've got the gangs who are then saying, we're going to make an example of you potentially. So it's making it the situation worse. Now, it's always been the case, though, that Albanians have been one of the highest trafficked groups into the UK, and the government knows that. They've been talking recently about increases with the referrals to the national referral mechanism. Now, those numbers actually show that Albanian young people who are living in the UK already are becoming more vulnerable, or at least being identified as trafficking victims, not just those coming across now. So this is a huge problem, which is only getting worse because the government is making unfounded claims about Albanians. Based on the work, Daniel, that your organisation does supporting the victims of child trafficking, what can you tell me about the kinds of situations that trafficked children in the UK are at risk of ending up in? There's so many different forms of trafficking. What we see a lot of, you have trafficking for forced labour, which tends to be young men, and then trafficking for sexual exploitation, which tends to be young women. Unfortunately, those who are trafficked for forced labour seem to be being almost treated as criminals themselves rather than the victims of trafficking. And they can be in cases such as cannabis factories, where they're forced to work in these places. And then when they're raided, they're found and should be identified as trafficking victims, but can be arrested as you know, being criminals. There's so many different forms of exploitation this takes, and so many times that it's just not recognised by even the authorities that situations are cases of trafficking. If you think of trafficking as almost like domestic abuse, it's that form of coercive control. So the victims don't always know themselves, so that makes it a lot harder for them to be identified. I'd like to talk a bit more about that issue of identification because we often think of trafficking as something that happens far away, but as you've just suggested there, it's actually happening often much closer at hand than people imagine. What signs should people look out for and what can they do if they do suspect that someone they may have met is being trafficked, has been trafficked, or maybe at risk of being trafficked. And just a sort of a, a caveat here, our audience is very much international, so in different parts of the world. So the first thing I would say that if anybody, if you suspect anybody is being trafficked, notify the authorities straight away. It is better to be safe and ensure that they are protected than, make, than worry about the fact of, or maybe I've made a mistake. It is notify the authorities that you have a suspicion that trafficking is taking place. You're looking for young people who maybe you don't see going to school or they're obviously sort of in distress. They have adults nearby keeping tabs on them and not letting them speak freely. So you're looking for those elements where you can see that they're being controlled almost. They're not being able to express themselves fully. Then don't have freedom to come forward. It's not easy to spot. It does take, that's why we have specialist trained um, individuals. And that's part of the problem with the hotels is there aren't enough people with that specialist training being used in the home office run hotels. But if you have any concerns, 
notify the authorities in your local area as soon as possible so that they can act upon them. Daniel Sahage is Campaigns and Communications Manager for the anti-child trafficking organisation Love 146. To a completely different topic now, energy, and what that's got to do with the price of bread. Quite literally, in the case of the French bakers' demonstrations in France, which we'll be covering later in the programme. First, though, to Tübingen, a university town in southern Germany, which, although founded in the Middle Ages, is now facing a very modern problem. Whilst experts say the worst of Europe's energy crisis may now be over, the full brunt is yet to come for the university and its students. Grace Nakamura has more. Tübingen is home to one of Europe's oldest universities. Around 90,000 people live here and a third are students. Online classes not because of COVID. Lara Steck is a 24-year-old student who shares a flat with a friend. They pay their landlord in advance for utilities like heating, electricity and water. At the end of each year, they compare what they actually used to what they paid for in advance. So for most renters, the costs of last year's bills are only now being felt. I just got a bill last week from last year and it was like 200 euros each, so 400 in total. Yeah, I paid 60 euros every month for like water and electricity. Yeah, (laughs) seems that if we used more than this, so we had to pay back 400 euros in total because we used more electricity than expected or the prices went up. Lara says a lot of students are now really concerned about the bills they'll get in the next few weeks. But they're not the only ones trying to balance budgets as a result of higher energy costs. You know, they say about Tübingen... Professor Monique Scheer is the university's vice president of international affairs and diversity. She says universities are the only institutions of higher education that are required to manage their own energy budgets. Professor Shear says this year's energy bill is likely to be much, much more than the university's 2021 bill of 11 million euros. The energy crisis has caused us to really dive deep into our budgets and look where we can find things that we can save money on. That means that 2023 will be the really difficult year. We're expecting energy costs of 20 million, which is almost double. In October, the university sent an email to its students announcing new energy-saving measures. Many were familiar, like closing doors and turning off electrical appliances. And as Lara points out, some were too familiar, like a week of online learning. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird feeling to have online classes, not because of COVID, but because of energy bills. Tobias Erda is the university's energy manager. He's hopeful that turning all room temperatures down to 19 degrees Celsius will be the most effective energy-saving measure. The heating is with about 70% the greatest amount of energy, so it's also the biggest thing where we can save energy. As a result of these measures, the university was able to cut back 25% on energy use in November compared to the previous year. But there's only so much you can do to buildings built in the 1400s. Professor Monique Scheer again. Part of that is because the buildings of the university are really spread all over town. 
and there are 180 different buildings in the university. Some of them date back to when the university was founded in the Middle Ages, very, very old from the 15th century. Many of them are from the 19th century. And these really old buildings are difficult to control because they are protected by law. They fall under historic monuments. And so we can't just start putting insulation out on the walls and we can't just switch out the windows as we see fit. We have to make sure that uh, the buildings maintain their historical character. Professor Monique Shear says it's not the first time young people have had to scrimp to pay energy bills. The older generation in Germany is the generation that experienced the Second World War. And the years after the Second World War were also very, very difficult. And it was a very cold winter in 47, 48 were some very cold winters. So there's a lot of traditional knowledge in the older generation about how to save energy and how to be as frugal as possible. Tübingen's already seen its first snow of the year as students trickle back to class after winter break. The upcoming annual utilities bill is a source of worry for many. But in this medieval town, past experience is keeping the Tübingen University students warm and prepared to tackle the energy crisis. Grace Nakamura, DW Tübingen. And our coverage of the knock-on effects of Europe's energy price hike continues in just a minute as we find out why French bakers are taking to the streets of Paris. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Bread. In France, it's not just a necessary food staple, but a symbol of national and cultural identity. So much so that France's iconic baguette was recently granted UNESCO World Heritage status. More about that later. When French bakers take to the streets, therefore, you can guarantee that the nation pays attention. And that is exactly what happened this week as bakers or boulangers turned out en masse to protest skyrocketing energy and raw material costs that they say risk putting them out of business altogether. Lisa Bryant reports from Paris. Denis Durand proudly shows a visitor his wood stove. It's one of the last remaining baker's ovens in Paris. Durand has already been up for hours. By 3.30 every workday morning, he's at his bakery in eastern Paris to churn out crusty organic baguettes and croissants that his customers depend on. But since the war in Ukraine and the end of the European Union's access to cheap Russian energy, the cost of firing up his modern stoves, the ones that use electricity, is getting steeper by the day. 
With the energy prices up, we're hit twice. Not just the ovens, but also the fridges, freezers and cold rooms. And unlike big companies, we can't pass on the cost to our customers. If we raise prices by 10%, customers will really feel it, because bread is something they buy daily. France's 35,000 bakeries aren't just hit by soaring energy prices. Also sharply up is the cost of raw materials like wheat, butter and eggs, and the packaging for fancy breads and pastries. So on Monday, Duhon joined hundreds of bakers from around the country to march in the capital. Some carried signs with slogans like bakeries in danger. I never participate in protest because I don't have the time and I think they're sometimes a bit much. But this time I've joined my colleagues because enough is enough. The protest was organized by the Collective for the Survival of Bakers and Artisans. Nice-based baker Frédéric Croix is one of its founders. We artisans are the economic lungs of France. We're the ones that fill the coffers because we pay a lot of social charges. We don't complain and we work all the time. Today we're not thanked for everything we've done. During the coronavirus pandemic, bakers like Duhon were considered local heroes. Theirs counted among the few businesses open during rolling lockdowns. Some even delivered baguettes to older people who were afraid to go out. Last November, Boulanger, as bakers are known here, got some recognition for their service and craftsmanship when UNESCO added the nearly two-century-old baguette to its intangible cultural heritage list. World-bred heroes, avec une farine française, dans ces quelques centimètres... President Emmanuel Macron praised the Boulanger as world-bred heroes. In these few centimeters of craftsmanship passed from hand to hand, Macron said, brandishing a baguette, lies the spirit of French know-how. But praise doesn't pay Durand's bills. I'm lucky. My energy bills have only doubled. That's already enormous. But I have colleagues whose bills have gone up fivefold or sixfold. So I tell myself I've done pretty well. The soaring costs come from electricity providers who are demanding colossal monthly payments renewing contracts this year. Some bakers have better deals thanks to earlier or multi-year contracts. The French government is offering support for artisanal bakeries and other small and medium-sized businesses. C'est donc la double peine pour les boulangers qui justifie une mesure exceptionnelle. And Economy Minister Bruno Le Maire called on energy providers to renegotiate contracts for bakers in cases where energy prices have exploded. But critics say the government's support is insufficient or too complicated to access. Durand, for example, is trying instead to cut costs and work longer hours in his family business that stretches back six decades.
We see our profits disappearing, but we don't have the feeling we're really supported by the government. We get a lot of promises, but nothing arrives. Still, bakers are divided over the way forward. Some unions did not join Monday's demonstration. Franck Thomas, who heads the Greater Paris Bakers Union, says it's better to negotiate with the government than to protest. Those who are going on strike have no solutions. They aren't asking for anything more than what we're already asking for. At Durand's bakery, longtime customer Laurence Rist says she doesn't mind paying more for her baguettes. This is a very good quality boulangerie, so I mean, you, the, the quality has a price, so it's, it's normal. And I mean, it's normal that the price uh, reflects the cost. Besides, Rist says the climate and the world are changing. The days of low energy prices are over. Lisa Bryant, DW, Paris. And just in case you're still not convinced of the seriousness of the love affair between the French and their bread, I have to tell you that this week we, quite unsolicited, received something of an ode to pain, an audio love letter, or is it a manifesto, to the newly UNESCO World Heritage Protected Baguette. Mesdames et Messieurs, I give you John Lawrenson. Elle est à toi cette chanson, toi l'hôtesse qui sans façon m'a donné quatre bouts de pain quand dans ma vie il faisait faim. One of the most famous songs by legend of chanson Georges Brassens about small acts of charity like giving bread to a hungry person. In the years leading up to the French Revolution, 98% of people's calorie intake came from bread. When it went lacking, they starved. Lack of bread sent the mob to the Palace of Versailles, where it found large stocks of it, brought it back to Paris along with the king and queen, escorted by revolutionary guards with loaves stuck to the end of their bayonets. One of the first measures taken by the New Republic was to legislate on bread standards. Everyone would eat the same bread. Le pain d'égalité, they called it. Equality bread. Dominique Enracht is president of the French Bakers Confederation and getting the baguette UNESCO heritage status was his initiative. He says the baguette also forms the distinctive part of what has become France's ultra-successful answer to fast food, le sandwich baguette. When you want a good sandwich, you go to a boulangerie. It's like a brand, which denotes a certain quality, because you know it as an artisan baker who chooses his own flour and yeast, who is going to make his bread himself according to his own recipe. Oh, and baguettes can sing. Well, that's the word bakers give to the crackling noise they make when you take them out of the oven. Hear it? Just about. John Lawrence, DW, Paris. 
France. The country where give us this day our daily bread is not a figurative request, but a definite demand. If you'd like to hear that or any of the other items in this programme again, you can do so by looking up the podcast version of this show. And whilst we're on the topic of podcasts, I would like to put in another fangirl word for Cannabis Cowboys, DW's first ever investigative podcast. This week's episode takes us even deeper down the rabbit hole as we begin to meet some of the people behind the scam. And I cannot wait. I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20k. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy, hence why they like cannabis and crypto. Money, money green, you know, like everybody likes money. In this investigative podcast series, we entered a world that we never expected to find. It bears all the trademarks for Russian mafia. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Stop fantasy. This is Cannabis Cowboys, a story about big dreams, juicy money and never-ending hype. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts. Back on Inside Europe, we're coming to the end of the show. This programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from my colleague Nick Martin and sound engineers Wiesam Dahmen, Thomas Schmidt, Sören Leutfeld and Julius Schmidt. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn.